0: You're listening to a podcast from St. Bart's. To find out more about our church or to take a next step, visit stbarts.com.au. Well, if you have that Bible passage open from Acts, that would be helpful. Uh, if you don't have a Bible but would like one, uh, one of the ushers up at the back will be able to give you one as well, and you can take that home with you if you'd like as well. But let's pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us, so we just don't know you as head knowledge or know about you, but that we can know you intimately and personally. And so we pray that as we look at your word today, that you help us to know you better and put it into practice. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the summer period, I gave myself a new role in the St. Bart's staff team here Uh, The cricket advocate. Uh, So I kept people up to date with the scores and what was happening. Uh, If you're interested, India are 1 for 60. uh, Sorry, Australia are 1 for 61 in India overnight at the moment. But there was a bit of a problem. Not everybody in the staff team knew the rules of cricket or knew what the score meant. So the idea that a batsman was just out LBW didn't quite make sense. And the fact that Travis Head just scored a six, uh, they had no clue what that meant. Uh, There was no passion for it, or not much excitement, because they didn't quite know about the concepts of cricket. Likewise, if we try and share with the modern Australian that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for your sins, well, I'll never say this won't work, but it may not hit the mark because the modern Australian probably doesn't know too much about Jesus except for what they've heard potentially in the media. They have no concept of what atonement means. They probably only know about sacrifice from a military perspective and probably the word sin is really in reference to them to a sinful rich chocolate cake. So then what are we to do? Well, we can take a leaf out of Paul's book here in his Macedonian mission. We see Paul in these chapters from 16 to 18. We see that he removes any cultural barriers that would stop them proclaiming without compromising on the truth. He preaches the gospel widely to different people. He acts compassionately and graciously. He observes and analyses the culture of the day. He offers critiques about why the culture may not be correct. And then he proclaims the truth about God in words that they could understand. So I flick back to uh, the beginning of chapter 16 with me, where after the Jerusalem council, Paul and Barnabas have gone their separate ways. So Paul has partnered with a bloke called Silas and has now picked up Timothy to join them. Now, Timothy's mum was Jewish, but his father was Greek, and so Timothy wasn't circumcised. So what did Paul do? Well, he had Timothy circumcised. Now, if you were here last week, you may be thinking, "Uh, hang on, didn't we just see last week at the Jerusalem Council that circumcision wasn't necessary? What's Paul doing here? Is he being a bit two-faced and a bit flippant? Well, actually, no, he's not. If we have a closer look, he has Timothy circumcised so that he would be acceptable to the Jewish culture. He has Timothy circumcised so that, that would open up doors for the gospel to be preached to the Jews. He sees this as a non-salvation matter. John Stott says uh, that we see Paul here as firm as anything on matters for salvation but as flexible as grass on other issues to enable evangelism to happen. Paul is removing any cultural barriers that would stop them proclaiming without compromising on the truth. So Paul, uh, Timothy, Silas and Luke go on their way to Macedonia after seeing a vision. Uh, Macedonia is on the other side uh, of the sea, across from Jerusalem. It's where modern-day Greece is. Uh, but they go over the land through various regional centres, over through the north. And when they get to Macedonia, Luke records their encounter with two people. Firstly, Lydia. Uh, Lydia was a rich wool merchant. And she turns to Jesus, and her and her whole household is baptised, and immediately welcomes Paul and his mates into her house as a generous and gracious act of hospitality. Then Paul and Silas end up once again in prison, but whilst in prison and in chains, they sing praises to God. The jail miraculously opens, their chains become undone, they're given the opportunity to escape and run away, but they stay put. They act graciously and compassionately, especially to the jailer. And through their witness, the jailer went from tormenting them to repenting, and they're washing their wounds. He was converted and brought them into his house to take care of them. But the crew didn't hang around, but kept on going to Thessalonica and to Berea, preaching the gospel in the synagogues, getting kicked out by the Jewish leaders out of the synagogues, and then preaching in the streets. So here we are in Berea, over 1,500 kilometers away from Jerusalem, with people from different backgrounds, rich and poor, slave and free, Greeks and Jews, jailers and households, women and men, prominent and lowly, all coming to know Jesus and then living transformed lives. The gospel is going out. The gospel is continuing to go out. And yes, even today, the gospel needs to continue to go out. That same work that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke did still continues on today. The task isn't unfinished. The need is great. It's up to us, in partnership with the Holy Spirit, to keep the mission going. How do we do that? Well, let's look at how Paul goes about it in Athens. Uh, After being escorted out of Berea, Paul continues on to Athens. Uh, This is a city with a real rich history. Its heyday was about 500 years BC, where people such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle came from. In terms of population, when Paul gets there, it's probably around 10,000 people, it's estimated, And it has been estimated that there were potentially around 30,000 gods. These came in the forms of statues, different household idols, came with their various temples and practices. There was a saying going around at that time that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man or a woman. Uh, this place was teeming and overflowing with God, with God's, and Paul isn't happy when he sees it. What is he, his reaction? Let's look at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was greatly distressed. There was a bit of a stomach churn, a jealousy for them, a passionate indignation that they would mistreat God in this way. My sister, who was born in New South Wales, married a bloke who was born and raised in Queensland. So when it came to state of origin after she got married, I was greatly distressed to find out that she was going to start supporting Queensland. She swapped allegiances. I was jealous for her support of the Blues after growing up and supporting them together. You'll be pleased to know that I've gotten over this now. Uh, but ramp it up, Paul was greatly distressed, not because of a football team, but because the Athenians were de- devoting their whole lives to dead idols and to unknown gods instead of the alive and knowable God. This word for greatly distressed is the same word to describe how God felt when Israel rejected him. Greatly distressed as they rejected his love and favour. That same jealousy for them filled Paul's heart as he saw the Athenians worshipping their gods, their misplacing of their worship, not seeing God for who he is, but instead worshipping false gods. And this jealousy made him do something about it. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he went to the synagogue where people would have known about the concepts of the law and the Messiah and the prophets. He went to the marketplace as well called the Agora, where people had no idea about the history of the Jewish nation. He faithfully told different people about Jesus and answered their questions, knowing that the hope of Jesus wasn't just a nice concept among others, but was the robust truth and the reality that could be questioned. However, the people of Athens aren't really all that impressed with Paul. Rather, they kind of bag him out, they call him a babbler or a seed picker, someone who would pick up new ideas from somewhere and just drop it somewhere else in different places. They think that Paul is a bit of a lightweight. So there's an air of suspicion, but there's also an air of intrigue. What's this new idea? So they take Paul into the Areopagus. This was the place where ideas could be hashed out and debated, the, uh, the place where uh, religion and philosophy was debated, the place of high thought and logic, and they ask him questions. So what is Paul doing here? Well, Paul isn't just proclaiming to the easy people or the familiar people, but he's proclaiming to unreached people, to people who have no idea In fact, he's proclaiming the good news to people like the modern Australian who are becoming more and more spiritual but not religious. Who have little to no biblical literacy. Who are pluralists, who believe that there are many ways to come to God. But they're also becoming more and more open to ideas and concepts of faith than ever before. In fact, research shows that only 6% of Australians are openly hostile towards Christians. Our world is not too far away from the Athenians. It's not all that different. Because we may look at the Australian culture in dismay and think that there's no hope. We may see that the ground is too hard and as a result, we may not have the appetite to share Jesus. But no ground is too hard for the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we might just be making assumptions that frankly aren't true. So why should we be the ones who limit the potential spread of the gospel? But we should take our lead from Paul, proclaiming Jesus to all different kinds of people and letting him do the work, letting him change hearts. So here is Paul in the Areopagus uh, with the members asking him questions and asking him to speak. And what is recorded here is a brilliant way of sharing Jesus. He does three things. Firstly, he does some cultural analysis. He makes some observations about their world in order to figure out how to relate to their world. So he walks around the streets, he listens to people, he observes what their world is like. This then gives him the data to, secondly, offer a bit of a critique so that they can question their own faith and question their own beliefs. Then lastly, this gives him a basis and a platform from which to preach the gospel from. Analysis, critique, proclaim. Now, if we want to be effective in sharing the gospel, then we've got to know who we are sharing it with which means engaging with the culture, starting with where they are, offering critiques. And then we get the opportunity and platform to tell them the better story, the bigger story, the news of Jesus. So verse 22, look with me. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you In his little strolls around town in his walks he has observed he offers the critique that they are very religious but they don't actually know the things that they worship This altar to an unknown God is probably just their just-in-case altar. Just in case all their gods and idols didn't cover everything, here's an altar to cover the rest. Uh, They claim to be high and enlightened, but maybe they're not as enlightened as they think they are. And this is Paul's platform. This is Paul's in with them. He's going to say... Let me tell you who the real God is, who created all things, who's actually alive. Athenians, you may worship an unknown God, but let me tell you about the God who is knowable. Let me tell you about the God who's a million times better than what you can imagine. Verse 24. The God who made the world... And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. You can't domesticate God. You can't contain God. You can't add anything to God. And God doesn't need us. Athenians, God is so much bigger and better than you can ever dare to imagine. Uh, this is really radical. Remember that he's speaking these words into a town which has thousands of gods, multiple different temples, and Paul says, You've got it all wrong. The God isn't like a king needing to be fed or a bronze god statue needing polishing. He isn't the God of a certain area, like the God of the weather or the God of agriculture or the God of fertility. No, he is the Lord of heaven and earth and everything in it. But there's more. God has made himself noble. It's not that God is just so big and high and mighty that we can't know anything about him. No, he has actually revealed himself to us. Paul references the fact that there is order in creation. The fact that we exist and that we live and that we have breath is an amazing point to the existence of God. And so this revelation, this kindness to humanity should cause us to reach out for God. But instead, because of the distortion that sin does, we end up settling for idols, for gods that are less than what Paul says in verse 27. God did this. God made an ordered creation so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design And skill. Paul quotes the poetry of the day to further his argument. Uh, Originally, the quotes may have referred to Zeus, so the poets were close-ish to the truth, but Paul points the Areopagus members to the one who is really the father of all. And just logically, if we are God's offspring and like him, then it's ridiculous to think that God would be made of wood or stone and would be dead. Because otherwise we would be made of wood and stone. (laughs) Athenians, you worship many gods. Statues and idols. You even worship an unknown god. But here's the bigger and better story. God isn't containable. God isn't unknowable. God isn't just a God amongst the others. No, Yahweh is the God. The Lord is God, the maker of all things. There isn't such thing as multiple gods, because there is only one. He is the one who is worthy of our worship and adoration. Which means for the Athenians, their gods are nothing. And one day, God is going to put an end to the ignorance of him. Ignorance may be bliss when it comes to turning a blind eye to a potentially messy toddler for a cup of tea, but it won't be bliss when you eventually need to clean up the full bottle of talcum powder spread everywhere. In the case of true and proper worship of God, ignorance may be bliss when it comes to being full of pride or worshipping self or seeking instant gratification in living life as we may want to live. But it won't be bliss when the world is called to give an account. One day, God is going to come back and put an end to it. The deadline is set, the clock is ticking. The judge is on his way. So the command is to turn. Turn from worshipping dead objects, but instead live for the true God. Verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And this isn't just the reality for the Athenians. It's the reality for us. For the whole world. That when we die, we aren't destined to be reborn or destined to be absorbed by the universe or to be destroyed, but to be judged by Jesus, the one who is supreme over sin in death, the one who holds the keys, the one who lived the perfect, righteous, sinless life, but yet died and rose again for us so that we can have confidence on that day. But he will judge, including our workmates, our neighbours, our hairdressers, our family, Everyone in the world. And the command for them and us is to repent. To turn away and then turn towards leaving the Lord. And if anybody does do that, he promises full forgiveness, he promises complete reconciliation, he promises that we will be with him for eternity. As Paul looked out the absolute forest of gods there in Athens. He may have thought, Nope, too hard. Nothing's probably going to happen. But no, his passion for God led him to faithfully proclaim. As we look ahead throughout the week and think about where we're going to be this time tomorrow or this time on Tuesday or Thursday and we think about the people that we come across, Maybe be tempted to think, no, not possible. Nothing could ever happen. I'm tempted to think this too. But our passion for God should lead us to proclaiming His name. Because no ground is too high there is a world that is misplacing its worship that's mistreating god that's buying into lies but this is a god this is a world which god loves a creation that he came to save and redeem and us who are followers of jesus have this simple task to proclaim the good news of god's love God's redemption in words which the world can understand so that they too may hear and turn and see just how beautiful God is so let's pray and ask God to help us with this task Heavenly Father we thank you that you are the true living Lord that you are gracious and compassionate, that you flew the stars into motion, that you spun the earth into motion, and yet you also give breath in our lungs. So, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we live, that we may never forget this. Lord God, may we be so captivated by your love and mercy We can't help but tell and proclaim of your works. Lord, help us to have a heart for the lost. Help us to have creativity with which to proclaim. That through our witness, that people may turn, that people may worship you, that people will give glory to your name and find the experience of your love, your warmth, your kindness, your freedom, your grace to them in Jesus Christ, now and forevermore. Amen. This has been a podcast from St Bart's. To learn more or to take a next step, visit stbart's.com.au.